Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. As we continue with the book of Acts today, cleaning up the last few verses of the second chapter, we're going to see a description of what a healthy church looks like. And I'm going to read just a few verses and then identify for you the four practices of the early church and make some comments about each one. It said, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, right there you have the four right in a row. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, as it describes the way the early church was functioning, there are some things there that I, th I think legitimately challenge us. Are we committed to being the church? And are we seeing these things happen within the church? I would ask this question. This is, an, this is a unique church to ask this question to because of our history. What would we do if we suddenly exploded in growth? We did that one time, didn't we? Went from around 70 people to who knows what the high number was. I don't know anybody knows what the high number was. Hundreds, literally hundreds. What would we do if we had explosive growth like that? How many would like to see that? How many of you are prepared because I'm, I'm telling you, it's hard work. And if you don't want to do hard work, but you're praying for explosive growth, who do you think is going to do it? And when we read what the early church did with explosive growth, it takes your breath away. And I think as we study this today, you would ask yourself the question, God, am, am I ready for that? Yeah, it's, it's really neat. And to pray, well, Lord, just, just let us just explode. When you see the responsibility that goes along with that, are you willing to pay the price? God knows our hearts. If we're not willing to pay the price, is he going to invest a lot of new souls in Westside? How many? I, what, whatever stage of life you're at, I don't, it doesn't matter if you're just on the younger end of the spectrum or getting into the 
the, the final years of your life? How many of you would be willing to change your lifestyle and adapt to the needs of the flourishing church? That can be intimidating. If we had time, and we're not going to do that, but if we had time, I would call for the testimony of some of the people here who were here in this church when it literally exploded in growth. I'd have them tell you about the tremendous volunteer uh, network that it took to maintain that, to operate that, make that happen. About the uh, days like Patty has told about coming in on Saturday and volunteering a bank of phones to make the phone calls in preparation for Sunday. Uh, just week after week, the energy that went into making that happen. Well, when you're looking, I'm not just talking about Westside, when you're looking at what happened to the early church, there was just a handful of disciples that were there when the Holy Spirit was poured out. The visitors heard what was going on. They got curious. Peter got up and he preached a sermon and he explained what was happening. This is the great outpouring that was prophesied by the prophet Joel. And people were cut to the heart because of his message. And they began to devote their life to Jesus Christ. And thousands started getting saved immediately. These Disciples and apostles were suddenly overwhelmed with this, this, this wave, this flood of new converts. What do we do? Have you ever stopped and thought, what would have happened to the church today if those early disciples had not been willing and ready and, and mentally and spiritually prepared to roll up their sleeves and say, we have a situation here and we're going to have to do something now. What if they would have let it die right there? But look what they did. Those four things that they, they did in, in, the, in the teaching, the discipling, the, the fellowship that they developed, the, the selling of their property, every, everything it took to manage the swarm, the flood of new souls coming to them. And they had not specifically been trained in how to do that. They had not attended one church growth seminar. They just had a situation. And by the power of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the guidance, the leading of God, and their heart right, they begin to respond to that. So we have to do something. You just can't have people making commitments to the Lord, hundreds and thousands, and do nothing for them. The church would have not gotten planted in fertile soil if it hadn't been for these people jumping in and doing what was necessary. Now, the first thing that is listed here is the discipling, the teaching that they were continuing, uh, devoting themselves to the apostles, teaching and to fellowship. Let me stop right there, to the teaching. Discipleship. Now, let me tell you about the history of the Assemblies of God. We used to have a threefold mission in the Assemblies of God. And evangelism and worship and fellowship, that defined the Assemblies of God. 
do you see anything glaringly, obviously missing from that short list? We did not put discipleship down as a priority. I guess somebody thought that discipleship would logically follow evangelism. But that's not necessarily the case. Churches have had explosive growth that that did not successfully disciple those who came in. They evangelized, they got them saved, but they didn't get them grounded. The Assemblies of God has not historically been the best at discipleship. We've emphasized evangelism, but we haven't been the best at discipleship. Now, you've got to take your hat off to uh, our, our Baptist friends. They had a better structure for discipleship. Uh, they, they could take people under their wings and disciple them from a new convert and, and teach them what it means to be a Christian. Uh, and we didn't have a system put together to, to really do that effectively, especially in the smaller churches. We just glad they came forward and got saved and hoped that they stayed in the church and grew into being a Sunday school teacher or a, a deacon or, or whatever, but we didn't really systematically disciple them. I remember a missionary came to my church many years ago, and he saw a young man in my church that had just recently started coming, and he said to me, he said, he's a good man, disciple him. And so I thought, you know, that's exactly right. I need to disciple him. So I thought about that. The missionary left and thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. Pretty soon I called him up and I said, exactly how am I supposed to do that? You told me to disciple him, but what am I supposed to do? He said, it's very simple. He said, there's a number of ways to disciple somebody. He said, just meet with him. Just tell him that you want to walk alongside him, that you want to help develop whatever is in him, uh, that you can go through a book together if you want to. Discipleship is very easy. And because, see, I had never, as an Assembly of God pastor, been taught systematically how I go about discipling somebody. And so it dawned on me, you know, that's been the missing ingredient for a long time, discipling people, pouring into them. How many of you here, if you consider yourself a Christian, how many of you here have been systematically, specifically discipled by somebody? I think I see four hands. Is that Is that shocking? Does that tell us something? I mean, I'm not saying that you didn't learn and grow, but nobody took time to take you under their wing and disciple you and get you you a good, firm start so that you didn't have quite the chance of being uh, knocked off base. (laughs) your opportunity stolen away, the seed snatched away like in the parable of the sower. So here we're looking at this congregation and I've got the, by far the minority of people that said, yeah, I got discipled. So the first thing that happened in this, in this church is they understood how important it was to teach the apostles' doctrine to continue themselves in the apostles' teaching to these people. Now, you got all these people getting saved and coming in to the fellowship. 
And these people had the presence of mind to know one of the first things we need to do is get them established. Get their roots down. And so this is, this is Bible study. And you know they didn't bring hundreds of people together in a group and have a teaching. This was the original small groups. The original church had the concept of break them up in small groups and disciple them. Now, we read this with a 21st century mentality. It's just one of our faults. We think about the early church, and we talk about church today, and we think of church buildings. And so we're reading this through a lens of a 21st century mentality. But when you're talking about the church, they didn't have a building. What they did as far as, as a place to worship is the early Christians tried to continue to go to their synagogue with their new experience, but it wasn't working out in the synagogue. It was dividing the synagogue congregation because they were talking about having found the Messiah, and the uh, Jews there were denying that he was the Messiah and it was causing a schism and a rift, so they didn't have their own building. Where they were trying to worship was not working out with the rest of the worshipers, and yet they were the church. See, the church today, we think of a location, but there was no building. The church was literally, at that time, nothing more than the people. And of course, today, the church is still the people, but it was literally, there, there was no building to point at and say, there's the church down on Fifth Avenue. The church was the people, and the people was everywhere, and the people, they all, all they had was homes, so they opened up their homes. And they divided these people into small groups and they invited them into their home and they did a number of things in the home. We'll cover that in just a minute. But one of the first things they did is they taught them what Jesus had taught the disciples, the apostles. They continued in the apostles' teaching. So I'm thinking in this Bible study, we have Bible studies from time to time. It's been a, a normal part of the church to have a Bible study. Every church I've ever been in, there's some little group says, we want to have a Bible study. And they get together and they, they study something. They study the writings of Paul. They study topical things. They, uh, there's any number of things you can study. But these people didn't have a Bible to study. So they studied what the disciples, what the apostles taught them what Jesus taught the apostles, what the apostles taught them, and they were teaching these other people. Now, you start thinking about, well, what could that possibly be? Well, you have to kind of put the, the whole story of Jesus together and, and look at it as a whole to see, well, what did Jesus teach his apostles? He taught them character. Uh, he, he taught them uh, not to be hypocrites and, and make a show of your religion like the Pharisees. He, he talked them uh, about not being jealous about other people, talked them uh, about patience. Uh, he taught them about faith. He, he got into their character. Uh, he taught them about uh, uh, being more deliberate and, and not just flying off the handle and doing things spontaneously. He, he, just look at the whole story. The list could go on and on and on. And those are the things that Jesus poured in his, into his, his apostles, his disciples, and said, this is what it means to follow me. This is how you're expected to behave if you're going to be call a, called a follower of me. You should act like this. So they took that, and they said, now if you're going to follow Jesus, this is how he expects you to act. I have 
a 13-week discipleship class. I don't know how many of you have been through that. It, we had we took quite a few through it in the past year since I've been here. I haven't had uh, a number of converts in recent times to take through that class, but it just gets down to the very basics of what it means now that you've decided to be a Christian. This is what's expected of you as a Christian. You won't behave like you used to behave. This is what the Bible says you ought to do. This is how the Bible says you ought to think as being a Christian. It's a really good course to go through. And so we been toying with the idea of firing that up again. Got some new, pe new people here that have been wondering, is there some sort of a class I can take to get some foundation? And yeah, we can do that. But it's discipleship. So they were teaching the apostles' doctrine to these people. And thousands were being saved. That's the phrase that is used, being saved. Now let me take just a short detour. I don't want to get bogged down on this, but I think it's an interesting use of the word saved. We don't understand the word saved. We don't understand the title Christian. Maybe we do, but I don't think everybody today does. But in in, in the word saved, what does it mean to be saved? As though it's some historic event that happened, and when it happened to you, you're already saved. But saved is such a multidimensional word that you may have made a confession of Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, but you're not at the end of your journey yet. You're not the, at the end of your trials, your troubles, your tribulations. Jesus has not come back and rescued you from all the heartache and sorrow, so you have not ultimately at the end been delivered, totally delivered like you will be when this journey is over. So when they said being saved, being saved really includes a process. Not that you are earning your salvation, but that you have not reached the end of your, your journey yet. So we're continuing in being saved. Now, as the word saved had been used in the New Testament, uh, in, in, well, there was obviously by the book of Acts, there was no New Testament yet, but as, as we look back in the New Testament at the events that occurred before this event and the words that Jesus spoke, you see him using the word saved as a word that means ultimately at the end, being delivered from everything. Jesus never once used the term saved as referring to coming to him and confessing him as Lord and Savior and going away with the gift of eternal life. He never used that in that sense but he used it in the sense of ultimately at the end. Let me give you just a couple examples to show you what I'm talking about. Uh, the Bible says that uh, whoever endures to the end shall be, see, you understand the dimension of that. It doesn't say whoever comes to Jesus Christ and confesses him because it wasn't using it in that sense yet. Enduring to the end means you'll be saved from all that heartache that you went through to get there. You will be rescued. And then there's another instance where uh, it says if those days were not shortened, no human would be saved. And once again, it wasn't used in the sense of a salvation, uh, a personal experience, a spiritual experience with Jesus. Uh, and and the, the, the examples go on and on and on. But you remember the one about the, it's, uh, Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Then somebody asked the question immediately after, after that and said, well then, who can be saved? And that was in reference to entering into the kingdom of God. When you finally get there, you're finally saved from this world. So this in the book of Acts is the first time that anybody has used this word in Scripture in reference to coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And when they used it, they used it in an ongoing sense. Not that there were thousands that got saved, thousands being saved, and it's, it, it's uh, retaining the context of that original uh, use where you're eventually going to be saved because it, Peter just got through preaching this sermon where he talks about in the last days I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Then he, then he specifies the last days as being that time when the sun will be darkened and the moon turned to blood and all of these tragedies are going to happen. And then whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be ultimately saved from all this tragedy that is coming on the end of the earth. So it retains that original concept but it also brings them to a point of being forced to make a spiritual decision in their life. Because when he got done preaching, they realized, I have to do something right now. And they said, what do I need to do? And Peter said, this is how you're going to begin your journey. And we've talked about this in the past two sermons. Repent. That's how you start this. That's how you get on this road to ultimately, in the end, being saved. And he said, then save yourself from this corrupt generation. And then Luke says, and about 3,000 were added that day. What do you do with 3,000 converts? It would be a nightmare for any pastor today to suddenly have 3,000. Now, out in Modesto, California, uh, Glenn Berto used to be the youth pastor for Jimmy Swaggart years ago before Jimmy Swaggart made a mess of his life. And a dynamic uh, young man at that time went to California and took the church in Modesto. And they had the production out there, which I understand that Westside had the same. Heaven's gates, hell's flames. Uh, I don't know what your results were here. But out in Modesto, that, that thing exploded. And there were so many people getting saved and signing the decision cards. The church was overwhelmed. They could not handle it. So they called all the other pastors, gave an invitation to them. Would you come? Would you help us? The harvest is ripe. The laborers are few. And they started giving stacks and stacks of cards to any pastor who would come. Contact them. Get them in your church. Disciple them. Do whatever. We're going to lose these if we don't get them. And the cooperation between all the churches, all the pastors in dealing with this revival, the hit Modesto, they came to be known as every one of them. Came to be known as the church of Modesto. It was no longer the churches of Modesto. It was the church of Modesto. And they realized we have to do something for all these people who were proclaiming they've made a profession of faith. And now what's happening? Now, I've, I've been a part of outreaches, crusade outreaches. Uh, some special speaker comes to town. And in the, in the uh, uh, aftermath of that, they have decision cards, and any pastor, any church that's a part of that, they get you a stack of cards. And uh, we, had, we had that as a result of a Billy Graham crusade out in California. And one of the last crusades he was able to conduct. 
and we got a stack of cards from that. And you're supposed to follow up, but by the time they got the cards to us, it was, you know, processing that out, it was weeks. By the time I picked up the phone and I called somebody, said, hey, I have your name. It's been given to me. I understand you went to a crusade and you went forward. forward. The, the flame had already gone out for most of those people. I tried to call them and I tried to connect them with what happened. They don't care anymore. That's a part of their history. It's gone. They've done nothing with it. And I couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't get any success out of anything. They tried it again with the... Uh, uh, something on the river. Franklin Graham took his, his uh, uh, crusade up and down the Mississippi River. The Quad Cities was one of his stops. We got a stack of cards. We want you to help follow up on the converts. I had the same exact experience. By the time I got my car, those cards in my hands, by the time I picked up the phone, got a hold of these people, couldn't get a hold of some for a while. When I finally got them, it just nobody's interested. And the, and the ministers are handing them out. They're hounding me. What are you doing? We're not getting any report from you. I can't get anybody. And the ones I'm getting are not, are not uh, uh, responding. I said, this, this is a mess. I said, I, I, can't, I can't get any response from this. You know, if... You've got a situation when you've got that many people getting saved, and how do you process them? Aren't you glad the early church didn't drop the ball like that? Aren't you glad it didn't take them weeks to get a card to do follow-up? Man, here's what they did. They said, we've got to act, and we've got to act now. And they started getting people that were disciples and said, how many of you people here would be willing to open your home? And people were getting saved and they would send them into these homes and these people would welcome them in and make them a part of the family. How many of you people will welcome somebody new, newly saved into your home to become a part of their life? I know, I know, it does, we, we're, we're, not, we're not thinking like that. We still have, and I don't want to be critical. I just want to kind of observe where we are. So if we can fix something, we ought to fix something. We still have people in our church that are looking somebody that's sitting over on the other side. They say, now they've been here a while, but I don't have a clue who they are. That people, that is, that is a, that is a, a mile away from what the early church did when they said, send them to our house. We're going to feed them. We're going to teach them. We're going to get into their life. And people here that can't even meet a new face in the church. They've been here for, well, who are these people? They've been here for a year. But I guess it's easy to develop the mentality, somebody else here will take care of that. Well, maybe they will. Maybe they won't, but wouldn't it, can you agree with me? Wouldn't it be a much healthier church if every one of us felt compelled to try and meet people here and welcome them and see if we can be a part of their fellowship, a part of their family? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a healthier church than saying, surely they've got a committee somewhere that does this? They didn't have committees here in the book of Acts. Everybody had to jump in and do something. So what does all this have to do with continuing steadfastly in the apostles' teaching? It has everything to do with it. We're talking about discipleship. But the question remains, uh, you know, what exactly were they bringing them in and teaching them? Do you see, they, it, 
Jesus said, go, there, go, there, go forth, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And I think evangelism, we have, we have stopped at just saying, get them to come forward and pray. Get them to sign a card. And Jesus said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make disciples of people. Once they have decided to come and join the community, teach them what it means to be a part of that community. For three years, Jesus poured those things into his disciples and said, now go pour it into somebody else. I'm fascinated. I read in my studies for this, my preparation for this, that one man suggested there are five things that we get wrong about the Great Commission. I'm not going to give you all five things this morning. I'm going to give you one of those things. One of the things that we get wrong is mainly about imparting information. You know what imparting information is? Somebody got saved and we put a pamphlet in their hand. Imparting information, that is not discipleship. Now, it may be a part of the process if they're an avid reader and they're hungry and they want something, but if all we do is stock up on the literature and somebody gets saved and we give it to them, we're not fulfilling the Great Commission. That's the reason I'm just doing this one point only because I thought, man, this really nails it. The truth is, discipleship is not just about information. The discipleship is about modeling for somebody else the Christian life demonstrating to them this is how we live not just having a class to tell them how they ought to live but joining yourself to somebody that's new in the faith and teaching them to walk like I walk as I walk like Jesus walks they will be more influenced by the example you set of what it means to be a Christian than what you'll tell them about what it means to be a Christian that's part of why this community was organized in Acts. It was boot camp for new believers. They weren't just taught the rules of Christianity. They were modeled the lifestyle of Christianity. Part of that lifestyle was is we will bring you into our fellowship. We'll bring you into our inner circle. Now, the second thing it mentions is fellowship. And this is the word koinonia that I have mentioned before in a sermon in other sermons in years past. And the fellowship was a fundamental part of the Christian community of the book of Acts. We tend to impose modern day concepts on these Bible narratives as I had ex expressed before. So when we're talking about the fellowship, we probably think in terms of fellowship, fellowship hall, food. We have fellowship. But when you see that they actually went into these people's homes, and there it says, yes, they, they fed them. I mean, that's, that's a great way to fellowship somebody. If you invite them over and say, hey, we're going to have a barbecue, a lot of people, that's enough to get them to come. If you say, hey, you're a new, you're a new believer, I'd sure like to come over and do Bible study with you, they're probably not going to show. But whenever you tell them, you know, I appreciate the fact that you've, you've joined the community here. I just want you to have, come over and, and have uh, some smoked pork. And we're just going to sit down and we're just going to connect. And whenever they figure out 
the way you walk, the way you think, and the values you have, and you are modeling for them Christianity. We have fellowship here at our church, uh, but our fellowship doesn't cover everything that fellowship is supposed to be. Uh, our fellowship at, at one level can be seen in the interaction we have with one another when we come into church. Uh, we, have, we have different kinds of people here. Uh, obviously, that's, that's a good thing. We've got some diversity. Uh, we've, we've got the people that are, uh, they want to hit the door first to avoid the rush to get out. We've, we've got the people We've got the lingerers. And some of you don't know who the lingerers are because you're part of the first crowd. But you, you ought to linger sometime and meet the lingerers. Because when church is over, and I'm exhausted, I have preached my little heart out, I put all my week into this, and when it's done, I'm done. I didn't eat this morning, so when I'm done, I'm like famished. Get me a hamburger. And we got these lingerers that just, they, they just gather and they just sit for an hour. So how you doing? Oh, I'm all right. How you doing? They love their fellowship. They just love this, is, I, this, this wasn't one time in 12 years. This is every Sunday. They love their fellowship. I've, I've never seen in all the churches I've ever pastored people that just love just standing around with their brothers and their sisters and just enjoying each other like they do, except for the first crowd that's already gone home. <laughs> well, that second wave, we're in no hurry, man. And if my wife gets involved in it, and she meets one of the others in here that love to talk, and you two get to talking, I declare a fast. <laughs> Not going to be eating anytime soon. We got some fellowshipping to do right now. Oh, man, we got, we got another 45 minutes. And I like it that you like to fellowship. I really do. Doesn't help the hunger pains, but I love it. I love it that you like. I have pastor churches where everybody bolted for the door. Nobody wanted to be with anybody else. But they like hanging around. And I said, that's good fellowship. But what about making somebody else a part of your crowd? What about bringing them and said, hey, come over here and talk to me. Spend some time with me. What's your hurry? What about grabbing somebody and say, hey, let's go out to McDonald's. McDonald's is okay. It's okay. It'll work. Let's just spend some time together. Developing a mentality. There were enough volunteers in the early church 
who proactively sought out new believers and connected with them and invited them into their home where they had feasts and discipleship took place and, and, and they said they prayed together. The modern day church needs to grab hold of that concept. We need to be more proactive in connecting with people who come in. Connect, connect, we have connection partners. But connecting ought to be the duty of every Christian. Anybody who comes in and says, you know, I'm looking at the possibility of maybe being a part of Westside, who wouldn't want to go up and say, what can I do to help solidify your decision to be here, to be a part of this fellowship? Let's all get on the same page with this. Connecting with people is absolutely vital in church growth. It's vital for the survival and the thrival of new believers who come in. One commentator remarked that in his early years, he was being trained by Youth for Christ. And then the most important thing in the first few days after conversion, they taught in Youth for Christ. The most important thing they said in the first few days is fellowship. And as a young man being trained, he thought, you know, I'm not sure I believe that. He says, I, I think the most important thing is Scripture, the Bible. That's the most important thing. But then he, as, this, as he grew older and he, and he saw this play out, he, he began to understand that the fellowship was a place where the Bible happened. Getting together with people so you could talk about spiritual things. You, you could talk about uh, uh, issues that we face as Christians. You could, you could bring up scripture. You could comfort people. You could pray with them. The fellowship became the hub of all those other things. And then uh, the third thing was the breaking of bread. And the phrase literally, if, if you could read the original language, it reads the breaking of the bread. It's very specific, the breaking of the bread. And you probably already, when I said that, already figured out, well, but maybe that's talking about the, uh, uh, the communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And that, yeah, most scholars believe that when it says the breaking of the bread, it was talking about that. But see, what we do as communion, and I've mentioned this a number of times, doesn't even remotely resemble what the early church did. Jesus was literally having a meal. And he, he broke that bread that was a part of their meal. It was a, a part of the, the two-course, three-course, four-course meal. I don't know what they had. And he broke that bread, and he passed it around. And he said, by the way, he said, as often as you do this, think about me. Now, they wouldn't put in the whole picture together yet, but they were going to remember his words. And then he took this cup and he passed the cup around and he said, uh, this, this cup will remind you the New Testament in my blood. And so here they had this delicious meal and they had the traditional bread and they had the traditional cup, but Jesus said, when you do this from now on, let this be a remembrance, a reminder of my broken body and my blood. And once again, they didn't understand that yet because he hadn't died yet. But when they put it all together afterwards and they had all these converts and they invited them to their homes and they sit down to eat, they said, you know what we need to do? When we break this bread, let's, let's remind people, this bread ought to remind us of the broken body of Jesus. And they did that right at their meal. 
And when they passed the cup, and Jesus said we should never pass the cup around at our meals without remembering the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So it was all incorporated into their feasts. Even in the book of Corinthians where Paul had to address them that the feasts became the main event. And they forgot about remembering Jesus in the feast. And they became very selfish in the feast. And, and they showed up uh, with their potluck and they jumped in and they ate before the other people came. And the, pe the people came late, didn't get anything to eat. And Paul said, this is a mess. You made it more about the food than you have about fellowship. And then they started getting drunk on the communion wine. So, man, you guys have really messed this up. Now today we come in with our little cups and our little pieces of bread and we take communion and, and, and that really was nothing like that. Is there anything wrong with that? No. What we do want to do is we want to put the focus on Jesus. We take those elements, we take the cup, we take the bread, do this in remembrance of Jesus. But we don't have to wait until we pass a communion cup and have bread. How about every time you eat that you remember through the elements you're eating the sacrifice of Jesus? That, that, that would not offend him whatsoever. He'd be pleased that you remember him when you have those feasts. And then the prayer. And prayer scares people. If I announce a fellowship meal, we don't have any fear whatsoever. And we'll have a good showing from the church attend. If I announce a prayer meeting, everybody's busy. We can fit everybody that comes to my prayer meetings in a church van. Prayer can be challenging. I don't expect young Christians to have the stamina or the dis discipline to pray for an hour. I really don't. But don't let that stop you from praying. I remember sitting in a seminar with H.B. London. H.B. London was the brother-in-law of James Dobson. And he, being a part of the James Dobson ministry, uh, would travel and speak in behalf of Focus on the Family. And he had his portfolio there. So, very good speaker. And I was shocked, pleasantly surprised, as a matter of fact, when H.B. London confided in us in this time. He said, he said I'm, I'm so distracted when I pray. He said, I have to get down and I have to get my prayers over in five minutes because if I don't, my mind's gone somewhere else. Now, those of you who are saying, I can't pray for an hour because my mind will join H.B. London. But don't let that keep you from praying. And I'll tell you, praying for an hour is difficult. We come down here, we don't pray for a full hour, but... Uh, my wife and I, we're, we're 15, 20 minutes early just to be sure that, that uh, we don't get distracted from the focus of praying because I've done enough prayer meetings in my ministry to know if I'm the last one there, people have already separated into little groups and they're doing their fellowship again. And I've got to break the fellowship up. We didn't come here to fellowship. We came here to pray. So I, I've, I've taken preemptive measures so we don't get distracted from praying. When you come in here, we pray. We don't come in here and fellowship first and then get around to pray. I've had, I've had disastrous prayer meetings. Right? People got there before me, and then they sit down in the sanctuary, and they're just chatting and going on, and then it's time to start the prayer meeting. It won't stop. And I find it, folks, please stop. We've got to pray. Then they get offended. They don't want to go to prayer meeting anymore because I made them pray. So we just made the rules. Do your fellowship out there. When you enter here, we're going to pray. And so we have 45 minutes of prayer, 50 minutes of prayer maybe. We end with a few minutes of getting together and praying and sharing some prayer requests. 
It's not easy. Some walk. I think it keeps you awake. Some kneel for a while. Some sit for a while. But I'm telling you, it is a struggle for me to keep my mind on prayer for 45 minutes. I pray and I pray and I pray and then suddenly I'm thinking about Kentucky Fried Chicken. And then I'm shaking myself and say, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to pray. So I'm praying some more. And I pray specifically about things. And, and I pray about uh, the, the needs of the church. And I pray about the finances. I pray about people in the church. And I pray about, uh, you know, what's going to happen to me tomorrow uh, when, I, when I go to work. And I've got things on my desk I've got to do. And then I shake my head and say, that's not why I'm here today. I got it. So I get back on the prayer track again. And I, it's, it, anybody here that you, you are better at keeping your mind focused 100% on prayer the whole time, you tell me what your secret is because it, it's, it's a discipline. And I say, I, I'm here for a while. And prayer is not all about telling God. Prayer is about listening to God. And it's easy to drift when you, when you got to listen all the time because you're listening, you're listening, listening, and then all of a sudden your mind's gone off somewhere else again. It's hard. Don't let that stop you from praying. If you're like H.B. London said, all I can, the, the, to be quite honest, all I can do is get down and spend about five or ten minutes and pray with everything within me. And after that, my mind's shot. Well, do it then. That's okay. That's better than not praying, isn't it? Don't be intimidated by prayer so that you forget or refuse to pray. When we say you need a life of prayer, say, Pastor, I just don't know that I can pray it the house for 30, 45 minutes, an hour a day. Well, don't do it then. Get up and spend five minutes with the Lord and get on. Spend five minutes in the evening just thank him for the good day you had and ask him to give you a good night's rest and lift up a few people in prayer that has been presented to you, some needs that you saw that day. But just don't forsake it because you view it as this impossible thing to do. Final point is church is a community, and that's what we're looking at here. And community means personal relationship. And the concept of community is being eroded today by a number of different factors. Individualism has taken center stage over all the concern for the greater good. And that's happening in our nation. We're focusing on individualism. And we, 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 we are, people are marching for personal rights and they don't care how it destroys the nation to accommodate that because we don't think of community anymore. I have a right. You can't take that right from me. But if we're destroying our nation because we're trying to protect those rights, we've lost a sense of community. Here's another thing. The personal electronic devices that we have are destroying community. It's moving people out of flesh and blood community interaction into isolated pods where impersonal communication in a virtual community dominates our culture. I, I come from a different era. I, I, most of you here know the era I came from. Some of our young people don't understand the era we came from. The telephone hung on the wall. It didn't go with us everywhere we went. You went to it. And you didn't want to spend your life there by the wall, so you left it. Left it behind. You went and you had a life somewhere. It was a different era. 
But now we've got these personal communication devices and like somebody uh, jokingly said, I'm, I'm inviting a bunch of friends over to my house to stare at their phones this evening. <laughs> We're losing community. We're losing fellowship. And all these things are working and having an impact on the church. And, and here's what the church is, it, we're, we're, we're being lulled into this. And these churches are starting these satellite churches. Now, on the one case, good. I'm glad we're planting churches. But in the satellite churches, they don't have a flesh and blood pastor. They got somebody, maybe a worship band up there, and then they turn on the screen, and this pastor from somewhere else gets up and preaches, and you can't touch that pastor. He can't see you. You can see him. But we're, we are diminishing the sense of being personally involved with one another. That's just one step. And I'll tell you, if we was to establish satellite churches off West Side, I can promise you I'm not interested in being the, the, the having my sermon streamed into all these different... I want to get a human pastor there who can touch these people, who can see how they're being moved when I'm preaching. I, I don't know how many times I'm ministering in my ministry. I've had to stop in the middle of my sermon because somebody's being broken down by the Holy Spirit and we just abandoned this or they fainted or they had a heart attack. The man on the screen doesn't know that. But when you're there in person and people have a need and I see in the middle of my sermon, I've had people come down and just hit the altar and that's the end of that sermon. We're going to go a different direction now. The man on the screen doesn't know that. We're ruining the sense of community. And the original church, to original church, community was everything. They were community-minded. And community means loyalty. Again, the concept of community and the concept of loyalty is being undermined by the behavior of people in our modern day culture. Divorce rate testifies that loyalty in marriage is not as important as it once was. People readily change careers and go to work for the competition. Can you understand? Can you understand what I'm telling you? We worked for a company where the competition on the other side of town or the competition across state, they were the bad guys. Their product's no good. Ours is the best until you get a new job and suddenly you're working for the competition. We do that so easily. And sometimes it's necessary to do that. I understand, but the fact of the matter is that we don't have a sense of loyalty that keeps us bound to somebody when we do that. Sometimes some company doesn't deserve my loyalty. They're low down. They're sneaky. They're conniving. Maybe they don't deserve my loyalty, but I think that, the, that what I'm trying to speak of is where is our loyalty these days? We go to a church until they... Uh, do away the hymnals, and then we go find another church. And we go to a church until they do something we don't like, and we go find another church. There's no loyalty. I don't want to say there's no loyalty. There's some of you here that you're, you've outlived every pastor that's ever been here, and you're going to outlive me. You're, you're loyal as you can be. But is loyalty really reigning and ruling the day? Community is loyalty. 
the, due, to the, due to the fact that we change jobs, due to the fact that we just uh, just move so often. We can't even get we we can't even get connected to our neighborhood. Well, it's been some great people, but I'm going to move across town. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying it's, it's a part of all this dynamic that's happening in this mad 21st century where we don't understand community like we used to. I grew up in a house on 1109 Hillside Drive. I was connected to that neighborhood, connected to that community to the point where until the last person in that neighborhood who still lived there, my wife and I could go back as recently as just a year ago and go knock on the door, 1107 Hillside Drive, and visit now the widow that lived there and sit down and talk about when I was a little kid running around because we were connected to people. Now, what's all got that to do with anything? Because I think in the church, we're missing community, we're missing loyalty, and the church community has the potential to fill a void in people's lives that the world can't fill. That's, that's one of our assets. If we only know how to function as a community, we can meet a lot of needs if we understand what it means to be connected in fellowship and as a community. The corporate structure of the church is inspired largely by books written by the world where individualism reigns supreme. We become so corporately structured in the church sometimes we risk losing our community structure. As the board of Westside, we have constantly to be on guard against bringing the world's structure and the world's philosophy into the boardroom because this is the way boardroom, board meetings do it other places. It's the way the board operates in other places. This is the church. We don't operate like the world. We might use borrow the term board, but we operate differently. They strive just to get something done, just to have a, a bare minimum, have a majority, just go this direction, but we have a whole different philosophy here. We have come here to be united together and do the work of God, and it changes the dynamics. We don't operate like the world. Majority rules is not our main goal. Unity is. We thrive on volunteers. We don't thrive on hirelings. We, we can't afford it. We thrive on you. And if you don't step up, we don't work. It doesn't function. In the world, the weak are crushed and the strong survive but, and, and prosper. But in the church, God uses the weak and it confounds the mighty. And the church community is like no other community in the entire world. We should make obedience and faithfulness our goals and not success because it's so easy to buy into the world's philosophy. What's the church about? It's about being successful. No, it's not. It's about being obeying and being faithful. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This described the early church. Come on into my home. And they had a great time. They had great fellowship. And they had joy and they had peace, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. What a wonderful description. The early church and their fellowship were happy people. They were blessed. And who doesn't want that for their church? 
I think we all want that. So my challenge, if I'm going to throw one challenge out to you today, is to begin to think of your church, Westside Assembly of God, more in the sense of I'm part of a special community and see what the Holy Spirit can do with that in your life. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We thank you for the record of the early church that showed us how it's done. And Lord, we want to be more than just a church that exists. Lord, we want to be a church that pleases you.